Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm coming out of the post-Thanksgiving turkey coma to wish everyone a happy December. The month started happy for airlines. There was a lot of high-fiving going on in the airline world, Ben Baldanza. So here's a virtual podcast high-five to you. A podcast high-five to you, Scott. Let's hope everything stays on schedule when Santa comes to town. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk again to Chris Sloan, our roving correspondent, about a wonderful present he's given all of us. It's called the Archive, and it's a free treasure trove of airline history, information, and memorabilia. I'm eager to learn more about it. Me too. And speaking of Christmas, Christmas came early for Hawaiian Airlines shareholders. Alaska Airlines offered $18 a share for Hawaiian Holdings, which had been trading below $5 a share. The $1 billion cash offer, plus assumption of $900 million in debt, is a discount to pre-pandemic prices. More than anything, it reflects the predicament smaller airlines are in, since 80% of the U.S. airline business is controlled by four big players. The smaller guys, now numbering eight carriers, have a small pie to split, and it's shrinking. They have to get bigger to survive, and that's what Alaska is trying to do. This deal will do lots of things that we'll talk about in more detail next week, but one immediate impact is that it will influence closing arguments this week in the JetBlue Spirit merger trial. Alaska just strengthened JetBlue's case that it needs to get bigger to survive. It'll be easier for the judge to see that the threat from the big four airlines is very real. Ben, I know you're reluctant to weigh in on this because we're at a critical moment in the consolidation discussion and you're on the board at JetBlue, but let me offer some interesting numbers and thoughts on Alaska Hawaiian. Hawaiian has 24% of the seats this year between mainland U.S. and Hawaii, and Alaska has 15%. So together, they would be just below 40%. Very strong, but not necessarily dominant. United is the current number two at nearly 23%. Interestingly, Southwest, which just started flying to Hawaii in 2019, is already bigger than Alaska in terms of seats from the mainland to Hawaii. Hawaiian is also feeling the heat from Southwest because it's offering intra-island flights as well as flights from California and other parts of the West Coast into the islands. This deal could easily be seen as a response to the Southwest threat to both carriers. Two other thoughts. Alaska and Hawaiian both still have mileage-based frequent flyer programs, and together that loyalty program could be much stronger. We've talked before about how important loyalty programs are to airlines, and I think that clearly is a major opportunity of this proposed acquisition. The two will keep their own brands and likely keep labor groups separate, but use the loyalty program as both the glue to combine customers and lure new credit card users and loyal travelers. And second, kudos to Alaska for being in a position of strength to pull this offer off. Delta attacked Alaska in Seattle, and Alaska has thus far prevailed. Alaska has about 50% of the market at SeaTac, Delta 20%. Alaska came through the fight and the pandemic with $2.4 billion in cash and marketable securities at the end of the third quarter. And so it has the strength to pay $1 billion in cash for Hawaiian. Good job, Alaska. That also highlights one of the big dangers of the deal, however. 
Alaska fought off Delta by appealing to Seattle as the hometown airline. Hawaiian, too, is seen as the national airline of Hawaii, if you will. Both these carriers rely on strong local identity. And if Hawaiian is controlled from the mainland, it may lose a lot of that island personality and pride. That'll be a big challenge. Before the Alaska-Hawaiian story broke on Sunday, Ben, my favorite story of the week had come from Skift. It was an interesting plateful of speculation about the impact of the GLP-1 weight loss drug revolution on travel, done well by Skift's editor-in-chief, Sarah Kopit. Ozempic and its brethren are having a profound effect on obesity and already having a profound effect on aviation and travel. The story showed surging numbers for adventure travel and suggested it was not only because people were going farther afield post-pandemic, but also because many people who previously felt too fat to do adventurous things with lots of physical exertion now are jumping into river rafts and zip lines and bike rides. Spending on activities with above average physical exertion is up. Skift Research estimated an additional $1.3 billion in spending worldwide for adventure tour operators from GLP-1 drugs. Riding in an airplane is easier, too, when you're not obese, so more people will take more trips. The obvious change is lower fuel burn because passengers have shed pounds. A big number of pounds means a big number of dollars. A Jeffrey's senior analyst calculated that if the average passenger lost 10 pounds, that would trim 1,790 pounds from an average United flight, saving 27.6 million gallons of fuel a year. At the average 2023 fuel price of $2.89 a gallon, United would save $80 million a year. Not too shabby. Skiff noted there is a downside to all this, for hotels, theme parks, restaurants, snack bars, and others who generate revenue from food. The Ozempic Revolution has people eating less, so when they travel, they aren't spending as much on food. I don't think this past summer's international travel boom can be attributed to GLP-1 drugs, Ben, but it is fun to speculate on what a major reduction in obesity in the American population might do for travel. You know, Scott, I saw this story and laughed because I have a hard time believing that this is really a revolution. People have been heavy for a long time, and it's great that these drugs can help people get control of their weight. But are we really seeing a nationwide downsizing? I don't notice it in grocery stores or restaurants, but that's anecdotal, of course. It's nice to think if everyone lost weight, how that could help the industry and fuel. But at Six Flags, for example, That company has really invested in much better food, and food sales are off the chart, so people are willing to pay for good food. I don't think it's they're going to the park and saying, I'm not going to eat. No, I I think you're right, but I think what's interesting is what happens when these drugs become much cheaper and much more widely available. Not necessarily much cheaper, but covered by insurance for weight loss. Um, That will be, I do think, the revolution because they are very effective, or or at least seem to be so far. Uh, And if more people have access to them, then it will have a much broader effect. It's great for the population if people who need to lose weight, can lose the weight. But it's still a bridge too far for me to believe yet that it's really an impact on airline P&Ls. Yep, yep. 
Well, good reasoning there, and uh, and and thanks for bringing me back down to earth. <laughs> well, and if nothing else, it's just stop Congress from worrying about seat pitch, because if people are losing weight, put more seats on the plane. <laughs> That's what I thought you might say. <laughs> well. Ben, the most important story of the week came from the latest installment in the New York Times ongoing investigation into the air travel control crisis in the U.S. There's excellent and frightening reporting here. Through an open records request, the Times obtained summaries of hundreds of internal complaints made by controllers to an FAA hotline. There were seven reports of controllers sleeping while on duty and five about employees working under the influence of alcohol or illegal drugs. Some complaints describe dangerous staffing shortages, mental health problems, and deteriorating buildings, some infested with bugs and black mold. The Times blamed the staffing shortage and its six-day work weeks and 10-hour days for a fatigued, distracted, and demoralized workforce that is increasingly prone to making mistakes. And beyond the, the headline-grabbing stuff about controllers sleeping, I think that's the most important meat of this story. In the fiscal year ended September 30th, there were 503 air traffic control lapses that the FAA preliminarily categorized as significant. Let me say that again, 503 significant air traffic control lapses. That was a shocking 65% more than in the prior year. That's the meat of the story. The Times said the database of safety issues is full of mistakes by exhausted controllers. We have got to do more to address this problem than just wish it would fix itself over the next decade. The Times story certainly helps make the case for a major Manhattan Project-type national effort to come up with a breakthrough to save lives before it's too late. In other news this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Spirit Airlines is offering early departure packages in a cost-cutting bid. Spirit cited waning demand outside of peak periods and more planes grounded next year for Pratt & Whitney engine repairs as reasons why it doesn't need as much staff. The buyouts are voluntary and not available to crew members, just salaried corporate workers. I might add that those are also the workers who likely would face attrition in any merger so this may be preparation for a JetBlue acquisition. As we've noted before, Spirit had losses of about $150 million in the third quarter, so time for some cost-cutting. And some interesting comments from United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby last week. While announcing new construction and expansion in Houston, Kirby said he thought travel demand had normalized. This is the new normal, Scott said. That means business travel is what it is, reduced by 20% or more from pre-pandemic levels. And Scott, going back to your comment about Spirit offering early outs, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that says more than it does, meaning they are voluntary and every airline administration could probably cut some staff and just be fine. Spirits is being proactive, but they're not forcing anyone out. Yep, good point. Two other interesting news notes, Ben. Boeing was the big winner at the Dubai Air Show with 295 aircraft orders compared to only 86 for Airbus. That's because wide-body planes were the focus of most airline ordering, and Boeing had a strong lineup in twin-aisle planes. And the FAA finally published notice that it will require 25-hour cockpit voice recording capability on new airplanes. Currently, only two hours is required before recordings are overwritten. This was an issue going way back, significantly to 2017 when an Air Canada airplane came within seconds of landing on top of a United plane at San Francisco International because it had lined up to land on the wrong runway. It's an issue again now with the close calls we've seen this year. Recordings stop with crashes, so you have what investigators need. That was the theory behind the two-hour rule. 
but they record over crucial decision moments and near misses because they keep recording. The NTSB has been pushing for extended recording capacity for years. ICAO made this an international standard three years ago, as did the European Union Aviation Safety Agency. It's about time that the FAA caught up. And by the way, why not require retrofit? Can it really be that expensive to increase storage capacity on recorders these days? You know, I'm not sure what it takes, but like you, it doesn't seem like it should be that big a deal. And it's a good idea. The more we record, the better our analysis will be about what happened when things go wrong. Yeah, it just seems to me that you could plug a new box in with with greater storage capacity. Maybe there's software changes or or whatever, but um, we do that all the time when we upgrade computers. I'm not sure why we can't upgrade the cockpit voice recorders. That's right. And I'm sure Airbus was disappointed in Dubai. It's true that Boeing has a good portfolio of wide-body planes, but Airbus has been investing, especially in the A350, so I'm sure they were disappointed that that plane, while popular, hasn't reached the market as strongly as the Boeing 787. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they're committed to supporting the aviation industry and its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Now it's fun with Chris Sloan time. (laughs) We're pleased to hear again from our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, who in real life runs a TV production and marketing company doing projects for major networks and is also a journalist for Air Transport World and the Aviation Week Network plus other aviation magazines. Chris has created a virtual museum of the history of aviation called Archive. You can find it at thearchive.net, T-H-E-A-I-R-C-H-I-V-E.net. Chris, first, welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us. And let's start by telling us how Archive started 20 years ago. Well, I mean, in a way, it actually started, I'm going to show my age here, but it started about 50 years ago uh, because I, when I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Basically, uh, that was the uh, headquarters of American Airlines, which uh, the world's still the world's largest privately owned airline maintenance and engineering base. And so pretty much all my friends and family worked for American. I even had my seventh birthday party uh, at the American Airlines maintenance facility, which, uh, you know, uh, boy, that was pretty uh, that was pretty geeky. We got to slide down emergency slides instead of the slides at the McDonald's land playland. So that was pretty cool. But that uh, hatched a fascination with the airline industry. And I started collecting when I was, you know, five years old, running up and down the ticket counters um, and getting timetables and going to, I know this really sounds old, but you might remember what city ticket offices were. 
going down there and uh, taking the bus. And so collected, you know, for many, many years. And actually, American Airlines, the very first C.R. Smith Museum, which uh, is in Dallas, actually began in Tulsa and was literally in the basement uh, in the concourse at the Tulsa International Airport. So I was like, you know, I started visiting airline museums and over the the course of collecting, I felt like, well, I had this massive collection, but, uh, you know, it was kind of fun for me, but it really needed to be shared. And kind of that's been my whole kind of ethos in life is anything worth doing is worth sharing and, and, you know, creating. And so about 20 years ago, I had this idea, you know, I I was like, you know, would love to create an aviation museum, a real one, like a bricks and mortar one. Um, And, you know, it was interesting. uh, I think the one that inspired me was one in L.A. called Flight Path, which is really unique because it's, I think, the only one that I know of that to a real extent kind of focuses not just on one particular airline and its predecessors, but on all of them and particularly those serving LAX. And so I, I basically, you know, using really bad tools, imagine the ugliest MySpace page you ever saw in the early 2000s. That's what Archive looked like when it launched. And um, we're celebrating our 20th, uh, 20th anniversary. So it's been, uh, it's been quite a ride. So what's the new site like, Chris? Well, it's, uh, it's really cool. I mean, it's an, it's an absolute rabbit hole. Um, it has 66,000 artifacts. And uh, what makes it you know, different, obviously, we've really spent a lot of time on the user interface, the speed, uh, because we're dealing with so many artifacts since it's a huge database that we wanted something that really, really was searchable, browsable. You can go down any sort of rabbit hole and enter it any way you want. In other words, you know, like a true digital collection, a virtual museum, it tries to meet you the way you, uh, you know, you want to, you know, go through the materials. You could be a person who says, I just want to find everything I can about Pan Am, or I want to see everything that's ever been published as seemingly on the 727, or, you know, visit a specific airport and look back at what does 30 years look like at you know, London Heathrow, because uh, that's what, you know, and I'll kind of get into what the contents of it are in a, in a bit. But we really, really focused on the speed and the resolution and making it extremely user uh, user friendly. And I think also, you know, kind of pretty. Well, you keep saying we. What army do you have working with you on this? It is uh, it is quite an army. I mean, it started off by myself, uh, and I coded it myself and scanned it myself. And about still about 85 percent of the collection uh, is mine. Um, but what's really been great is I've had a number of people like Seth Miller and Tom Harris and Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren and even Marty St. George, who you know. Um, f- funny enough, a lot of airline executives and people in the business have contributed massive amounts. Uh, Bill Sablesack, a pilot Eastern, and started uploading. And that's another big difference in the site is that we welcome uh, contributions because my wife has put her foot down. I'm not allowed to really collect anymore outside of pictures and refrigerator magnets. So we're asking for people to upload and share and kind of crowdsource. And that's a big difference. And then, you know, I have a you know some folks who help me with the coding because it's, it's now way above my head. We've got... Uh, you know, Amazon cloud services type servers in. And I don't know if Twitter keeps screwing up. Uh, Elon Musk uh, keeps messing up X. I'm maybe needing to take a few servers off servers off his hand because this is about 11 gigabytes compressed of, of material. And, and so how do people upload or contribute? Well, there's a, there's a tab on it that just really says contribute and you just upload and, you scan. I mean, you can always, you know, send it to me and email it to me and email photos or, I mean, a lot of people, frankly, send us physical items, which has been very cool. But yeah, you just go and upload your JPEGs and they can be uh, photos and brochures. And um, and the great thing is we credit this. I mean, this is not really a for money venture. It's like Richard Branson said, the easiest way to become a millionaire is to be a billionaire and, and uh, start an airline. That's kind of what it's been like running this. It's a huge financial and time suck, but um, it's something that we feel strongly about kind of giving back to the community. And I, and I really think what we've tried to do is do something very, very different than, you know, other sites out there. Well, go on that a bit. There's lots of aviation sites. 
Why spend time at the archive? Well, because I'm asking you nicely to spend time at the archive. <laughs> Isn't that enough? <laughs> um, it's free. How about that one? That's pretty good. What makes it different is we know what we're not. You know, I'm not a plane spotter. I mean, I enjoy it, but there's a million of those sites and there's beautiful photography and uh, and also it's not an aviation news site. There's a number of those. In fact, Archive was the predecessor that Airways Magazine's digital site uh, was built out of. I started that and that that's what Archive uh, became. What this truly is, is a unique, really all-encompassing history of air transport. And we really try to focus on what a lot of places aren't all in one place. So it's kind of one-stop shopping. So some of the things that make it unique is that we focus on airports. And it's not just, you know, the ramp, but it's the terminals, it's the gate areas, it's the air side, it's land side, it's the lounges, it is hangars, it is facilities. So you can see the changes uh, in the in the in that in terms of airplanes, you can see forty years of photos of the cabins, the catering, the IFE systems, the headquarters of airlines, not just the hangars and the, the training and the maintenance, but you can go and see two virtual tours of the airlines headquarters and corporate offices. You want to see what Ben's old office looked like at Spirit? It wasn't much, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can go tour the Spirit headquarters. You can see the am- amazing new, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you can see the uh, museum-like American Airlines Skyview headquarters. So it's really amazing behind-the-scenes uh, tours. By the way, Ben's office uh, at Spirit, I've got photos for when these guys really walked the walk. When you'd walk into the lobby, they would actually have one of their Space Saver Labs uh, was actually in the lobby um, along with some tattered magazines. So I don't know any other airline actually had a laboratory. I'm not sure if it was hooked up, but I believe, judging by the odor, that somebody might have tried to use it. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of really funny uh, behind the scenes. We have immense amounts of memorabilia, brochures of like, uh, you know, the 747 of the Boeing SST, not only the, the marketing brochures, but the original pitch brochures to the to specific airlines and all their marketing brochures and history brochures. And uh, I think my, the, the center of the site was, is timetables and route maps. You remember those that are literally were paper. You know, those haven't existed for 20 or 30 years. And so you can see the history of, in, of you, any airline. It's almost like stumped the band from the beginning to, uh, you know, in some cases to the end of the maps and the route maps and the schedules. And so, and, you know, of course, there's menus and safety cards and, uh, another thing I, you know, I think I have the personal record of flying the most u- inaugural flights of new aircraft. So you want to see what it's like being on the delivery flight of the first A350 or A380 or the last DC-10 to ever fly or the what it's like flying an empty American Airlines MD-80 to the desert. I mean, there's immense photos of air shows and assembly lines and these special unique events over the last uh, 40 years. So, you know, it's I just find it to be a place where um, you know, history is made every day. So uh, that's what's really cool is when you visit the site, you want to see what, what 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 did Delta's song cabin look like? What did that airline look like? What was the soul and the spirit? And, you know, if history is kind of a prologue to the future, um, a lot of the people that visit the site are not necessarily aviation geeks, but people who are really interested in pop culture and design and, uh, you know, in technology because and architecture. And so it's got a lot of it's I think it's got a lot to everybody, but maybe, you know, I just like it. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm a little biased. Thank you for pronouncing the site correctly, because we do get the pronunciation air chive like an onion. I can assure you it is not an onion. <laughs> well, it, it is because you just keep peeling uh, and, and you find find new things. So give us your one coolest thing, your one most favorite, most unusual, most interesting. What's the the one thing that you're most proud of in it? Gosh, you know, I love all my children, but if you have to ask me the most obscure thing I have is sitting right here. And if, uh, is, uh, you know, my friend, Freddie Laker Jr. Uh, you know, people will remember Fred, some people, I think not all listeners, but many people, particularly, uh, those over 40 will remember Laker Airways. And, his son is a friend of mine and he grew up here in Florida and he just moved and, you know, even, uh, you know, and he's collected pretty much everything his father uh, ever had. And even his wife 
too said, you know, we are our houses. We need to look like it could be an, an episode of Hoarders. And uh, so, you know, what do you do? You call your friend who's another hoarder and you say, you know, hey, I've got a few things to take off my hands. And the thing that really blew me away the most is Freddie Laker was knighted by the Queen of England. And when he was knighted, there's a very specific top hat that you wear and it's custom tailored and it has his initials. And uh, he gave me uh, the top hat and it's signed by the Queen uh, and the bow tie um, that, that was that he wore when he was knighted for what he contributed to British society. And along with that, as a statement, every year Freddie Laker would buy a new Rolls Royce. He owned like 29 or 30 of them, but he kept the same license plate, FAL1, and he gave me the license plate. So um, wow. every once in a while, I like to uh, put the top hat on. And, uh, you know, uh, it really would look great in a wedding. But uh, I was like, wow, uh, it, this, is, this, is, this, this, is, this had a sword run over it to buy a... Uh, by the queen. So that's, that was, that, I think that's probably the one. I think that qual that qualifies as one of the coolest things ever. And I will say one thing about that's made this unique is I have never once ever sold anything. I've always been a buyer and I've always been a collector. And uh, I mean, my ultimate goal, by the way, is, and I'm, you know, is to, is to ultimately find a, uh, a, a museum where all this physically can be displayed, but I do loan, you know, significant parts of the collection out and they are on display uh, everywhere. They've been with the Museum of Modern Art or at the Miami International Airport. And uh, a lot of airlines even end up calling us and saying, hey, we're having our 75th birthday or 95th birthday, but we're missing. Would you have this? So we've loaned a lot of items um, to airlines and even manufacturers that, that they lost or didn't have. Hmm. That's so cool. All right. You mentioned Stump the Chumps. This is this is your chance. Uh, let's let's dig into the archive collection um, and uh, and try a trivia quiz to stump uh, uh, stump Ben. I'll, I'll just sit on the sidelines. <laughs> well, you, you know, um, I was one of Ben's students and I loved uh, being Ben's student. Ben is a phenomenal professor and, uh, you know, just a brilliant person who makes learning fun. And, uh, but you know, the funny thing about Ben is he was, um, you know, because we all know that Ben is a certifiable genius. Uh, he just kind of naturally thinks everybody's a certifiable genius. So we would get these assignments that though fascinating would make you cry. He called them problem sets and case studies. And he would say things like, Oh, you know, this is only going to take you guys a 30 minutes or an hour. And this would still be banging in my head as I'm in my 12th hour of no sleep. Uh, cramming for one of his exams. Um, so this is not so much Stump the Chumps as this is Sloan's Revenge on Professor Ben. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and by the way, let me tell you something. Ben gives no mercy with grading. Like, to his credit, he would hear you out. And, and but he usually would not, you know, Ben was great with giving extra credit and making, I mean, I learned more from Ben than I, than anybody else I've ever learned from the industry, but he virtually never actually would agree to a grade uh, to be changed or a question or admit that uh, maybe that there was another answer. So I'm going to have to go pretty strict on Ben because this is not to stump the chumps. This is the revenge on Ben. <laughs> you should be. You should be. <laughs> All right. We're going to start with an easy one here. This is what Ben used to say about every question. When Ben would say it was easy, that means we were probably not going to get it. So anyway, but this one truly is easy. Which of these airlines was not a predecessor of United? Was it New York Airways, People Express, Texas International, Western, or Continental? It's Western. That's a predecessor of Delta. Okay, well, this is not starting off well. Ben has got one question. Okay, I've got to do better. Next question. Which airline was actually the first to show live in-flight TV? And it's not who you're thinking. There's a hint. All right, so it's not JetBlue. Um, who would it be? And I'm going to guess, Scott, I'll just give you a hint. As I think... I You've seen it. I was going to guess Delta's song. Um, well, they were a little, they were slightly after JetBlue. Yeah, yeah. You think I've seen it? 
Lufthansa had an early satellite wow. service. They did. That's true. That was I should have asked that because they were the first, legitimately. I, I watched NBA Finals on Lufthansa in 2006, I think. That's right. That was a Coming Boeing back from, from Israel. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it never it never hurts to guess. There's no doc, uh, There's nothing to keep you from guessing. Oh wait, you just did. Uh, uh, yeah. Could it have been American on the DC yes. tens on the screens they had? It wasn't on the DC tens, but you're correct. It was American. It's actually on display at the really? C.R. Smith Museum, and it was called Astrovision, and it was in the <laughs> mid 1960s. And they also had cameras in the cockpit. Um, what was interesting about it was, and I, I'm going to confess that I myself have done this, even though at the time it was illegal, but they had just regular broadcast TV rabbit ears, some form of rabbit ears on the plane. And every third row, third or fourth row, I believe these were on 707s, there was black and white monitor. And because you're moving at, you know, six miles a minute, essentially, uh, the average television signal uh, you know, 70 mile range, you would basically have a signal and then you would, the station would go from static to clear reception to snow in about 10 minutes. So if you're watching an NBC show going transcontinental, you had to change the channel about 12 times. But what was cool is because you had ultimate line of sight, every channel was full. You could see over the, over Dallas, you could see Kansas city, Oklahoma city. You could see every conceivable station, but um, it only lasted a very uh, a few years. But um, if you go to the C.R. Smith Museum, they actually have the monitors on display there. Wow. That's very cool. By the way, American also had air traffic control communications. Um, and United obviously had it a lot longer. Um, but American had it for a while on, on the, oh. the in-flight audio. Chris, would it be fair to say that JetBlue was the first to offer individualized TV? JetBlue was the first to offer individual live TV. Um, Oh, now now you're asking me. I get to... I I think uh, they always said they were the first to offer satellite TV. They were the first with live satellite. I know the first airline to offer it every seat was Virgin. I'm not sure who was the first to offer it beginning in... Uh, at every seat in first class. But I think Virgin was the first to offer it at every seat back. I think they said around 92 is when they did it. But JetBlue was the first with live at every seat. Interesting. Here's something that I bet is not in the archive. The first ever complaint about the TV not working. Well, Ben, if you have it, please uh, do send it my way. I, I do. It's funny you say that because I do remember that when um, JetBlue first launched, remember the TVs weren't going to be free, and they actually had the credit. They have a little credit because they had the credit card slot in them, but they never activated them, and so they're still. I think they're still in most of those TVs. But here's a funny thing about the. Uh, JetBlue uh, that is very, I found really curious, is that, um, you know, back in the days before the iPads and, you know, where you can actually, and before in-flight Wi-Fi, where pilots could actually see, you know, real-time weather radar data, JetBlue, once they uh, installed the, you know, the little monitors in the cockpits after 9-11 with the black and white camera so you could see into the cabin, they actually had in those cameras, you could, they could switch to a live feed of the weather channel with no audio, so they could actually see in real time. I mean, the pilots told me they used it, where they could see where the local forecast, they would leave the national, and you could see the live radar and satellite across the country, and they said they would literally use it, and it gave them an edge over other airlines for avoiding turbulence and weather. And now we have iPads. Now we have iPads. Okay, now we're going to get to some equipment questions. Who was the last U.S. mainliner carrier to operate the Boeing 727? And again, a mainline. And when did they retire it uh, for extra points? And then, uh, and if you want to kind of go into to name the the, the runners up and their their years, you know, feel free for you know bonus credit, which Ben was always generous in giving. Huh. Good question. Well, I would say Continental, and it was sometime in the. 80s. I'm going to say Delta in 86. All right. Well, 
Ben has made a comeback because right now it's so Ben leads Scott two to one. You got that one. Awesome. Um, but uh, but uh, very good guesses. The answer actually was Delta, who retired the last one, withdrew the last one in April 2003. Anyone want to guess who was second, who was just very few, a few, just a few months before? Uh, Delta's was April. The second carrier was in January. Of 87? 2003. Oh, 2003. So, so Delta was April 2003. The, sec- the, the second carrier, uh, the last one, pr- pr- Previous to last one was January 2003. Uh, there wasn't a TWA by then. Correct. I don't know. I'd still say Continental, but I'd be wrong. So. All right. So Northwest retired theirs in January 2003. United American Continental retired theirs in 2002. And then U.S. Airways retired in 2001. Here's a kind of a, a side one is... Who was the first airline actually, this is kind of a tricky one, but who really made your airline uh, to actually retire the 727? They they bought them uh, while they waited for the ultimate equipment um, that they would uh, ultimately form the backbone of the airline. They retired theirs around 1972 or 73. Um, but... Uh, they uh, the, that airline, U.S. airline, um, th- throughout their entire career, the, most of their fleet was seven thirty sevens, not Southwest. But they started with seven twos. They had some seven threes, but while they waited for most seven threes, they 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 operated seven twos. Quite a few of them. Just as a stopgap measure. And they're still alive today, and they're they're they are a wild animal of an airline. Oh, it must be Frontier. Exactly. So you guys are tied now. I needed the easy clue. Yeah. Ben, every once in a while, would give us a clue. So, um, all right. So this one, now we're going to get, which airline was the launch customer? And, and by the by the way, in, in, in my defense, guessing Delta with old airplane questions is too easy. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Okay. I'll, you, if you want, I'll, if you want I'll, I'll take the point away from Ben. No, 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 no. Okay. Ben, Ben, wow. uh, listen, I, it was there for me. Ben got it. This is quite all right. All right. So right now we have a we have a tie game. Okay, we have a jump ball here. Which airline was the launch customer for the 737 100, 200, 300, 400 and 500? I mean, basically, uh, I'm asking you one one of each so you guys can each kind of pick one off. So first the 100. First one. The very first 737 operator. I'm going to say Lufthansa. All right, Scott, you got number, you got the 100. Ben, who was for, who was the first of the 200? Got, you got it. Uh, yeah. And 500. And 500, same airline, right? Yeah, Southwest. Exactly. Um, and the four, and uh, the 400. Uh, ben, you should, well, is it US? Scott. Yes. This is going really well because you guys have somehow answered every question. <laughs> so now um, I've got to ratchet things up. Um, this isn't um, okay. What was the first U.S. built wide body aircraft to have a non-U.S. launch customer, and when did they launch it? Now there are, depending on how you look at, it, there's kind of two answers. But I'm talking about clean sheet aircraft, and then we can also say a variant. And in the case of the variant. Uh, one of the variants never actually was operated by a U.S. carrier. So, which this was a pretty this is a pretty recent thing. The first U.S. built wide body aircraft whose launch carrier, the first carrier to operate it, was not a U.S. airline. And what was the aircraft and what was the airplane? The pretty recent. Yeah. It's very recent. Me. I'll say that Lufthansa flew the first. Seven eight seven. Well, the, okay. I I would. I thought A and A flew the first seven eight seven. Scott, you got it. But um, Ben or but would, wouldn't the first U.S. built wide body be the seven four? Yes, but this but that the first U.S. built wide body that had a non-U.S. launch customer. Oh, okay. Seven four's launch customer was Pan Am. Yeah, yeah. Now. So the, the other two technical answers, I'll just throw them out there. The 747 Freighter actually was launched by Lufthansa was its first operator, and that was in 72. The 747-300 uh, in 1983 um, was uh, never operated by a U.S. carrier. 
And same, of course, from a passenger perspective with the, the 747-8. Now, here's an easy one. What was the first McDonnell Douglas aircraft with a non-U.S. launch customer? And what year did it enter service and with whom? And this was a very popular airplane. That's an easy one. <laughs> it's a very, well, it's a very popular airplane. Very popular airplane. Their most popular airplane, I would probably say. Well, that has to be the MD-88, but, but Ben, <laughs> you take that one. Well, it could oh, right. be the yeah. TC-9. Is that your final answer, or do you want to phone, you want to phone a friend? I'm going to say TC-9 Aeromexico. Um, professor, the answer was, it was the MD-80, but it, that was launched in 1980, hence the name 80. It was originally called the DC-9 Super 80, and it was launched, Swiss Air was the first customer. And in fact, Delta was the first customer, the launch customer for the DC-9. And Delta, you could say, you know, operated the DC-9 from the, the very beginning, uh, obviously, until really the very end, uh, in the, certainly in the U.S. Delta launched theirs in 1965. So Delta was the first DC-9 and then they got a bunch. Exactly, and they bought them back. And do you remember the last year that they the Delta retired? Because I was on it. Uh, the last year that Delta operated the true original DC nines that came from Northwest. It was not long ago. Oh wow! Because it is, as Scott said, uh, it is Delta. So you're, it's surprising that it's still not still flying. January 2014 was the last DC nine. It was a Series 50. Now here's one I know you're going to get. The very first true modern-day large airline alliance, and here's a hint, these two countries signed the first true full open skies agreement with each other, and um, I know you all know this one. Yeah, uh, uh, the U.S. And, and the Netherlands, and it was KOM and Northwest. Exactly. You remember what year? 1992. Damn. You did Mic it. drop. Wow. We'll pull that out of nowhere. <laughs> no, I was at no oh, Jeff Shane will be very proud of you. All right. Well, this one's for this one. Okay. Hands on the buzzers closely. Chris. Yes. Before we go to that, how many flights at its peak did that alliance fly daily between Detroit and Amsterdam? God, I thought I was the quiz master here. Uh, the tables have turned. Um, Ben's extracting his revenge on my revenge. I'm going to say between uh, six. I think the answer is five. Good guess. Excellent. But good guess. Uh, do I, um, let me, hey, Siri, can we ask that question again? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> is, there an air, is there an airline, Siri? Um, if you ask, I, I tried asking uh, Alexa a couple of these questions, and you know what it said? It said, "Get a." The answer is, "Get a life." Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we do have an airline Siri, and and his name is Chris Sloan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a little. Uh, yeah. How many minutes to Wapner, Rain Man? Anyway. Uh, okay. What uh, Latin American carrier once had its headquarters in the United States, Ben? That is Taka. correct, and Ben. I'm sure you can kind of give us a little more of the background on why that was. Well, number one, there was a war in El Salvador. Number two, because the planes were unregistered, they were tax-free to Salvadorans in Salvador. So it was financially good and, and safer. And where was the corporate headquarters? Uh, in no, Miami. New Orleans. Oh, New Orleans, then. The more you know. I should have known that because Taka numbered his flights into the U.S. with the order in which they added them. And the New Orleans flights are all 100 (laughs) numbered flights. L.A. is two, New York is three. Wow. And so on. All right. See, the teacher wow. has stumped the pupil. <laughs> that Yeah, well. <laughs> All right. Well, knew, we're almost done, but I knew my moments of glory were fleeting with Ben. One more if we. If- okay. Uh, an Australian and American co-founded what famous Asian airline in 1946? 
Singapore. That's your final answer? <laughs> I don't think I want to say yes. Yes. Oh, there you yes, go. Say Pacific. Brilliant. Right. So yeah. Ben, American, uh, Roy C. Farrell, an Australian, Sydney C. or H. de Kentzow, founded Cathay Pacific in 1946. It was originally based in Shanghai. Then the two moved to Hong Kong and established the airline. And uh, and the legend has it that they were wasted at a drinking at a bar, and they came up with the name at uh, a Manila hotel bar. So, Chris, how about a final tally before we go? Well, this was super close. I mean, what's really amazing is there's only one question that I can see um, that nobody uh, got uh, correct. So between the two of you, super close, Ben, Professor Ben takes the title at six, but Scott was right there at five. And uh, so uh, uh, the, uh, the ch- you guys weren't really chumps and you guys weren't really stumped. So uh, <laughs> congratulations are in order. Well, well, thank you, Airline Siri. Um, that, that's that's five more than I thought I was going to get, by the way. But this this has been really fun, Chris. Uh, thank, thank you so much, so and much. Um, really encourage everyone to check out thearchive.net. Um, it is it is a ton of fun and a uh, amazing resource uh, for this industry for anybody who who loves aviation, loves airplanes, loves airports. Um, it's all there. It's it's a tremendous gift that you've given to to all of us. So thank you, Chris, and thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Let me just oh, one final shout out is if you get a chance, we're also on all on Instagram, uh, X, Facebook, and Threads under the Archive and at the Archive. So please uh, follow us there too. And thanks so much, guys, for uh, having me on and letting me at least once attempt to get a little revenge on the professor. Thank you, We'll Chris. be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history and you're welcome aboard the Archive.net. Thanks again to Chris for both giving the industry such a great resource as the Archive and for challenging us with an interesting trivia quiz. Ben, in the mailbag this week, Eric from Virginia asks, there's been a lot of talk about the lack of air traffic controllers and issues at the FAA. Are we seeing these issues in other heavily trafficked areas like the EU or Asia Pacific? Can you talk about what other countries, regions are doing and things the FAA can take away from other international agencies? It's a really good question, Eric. Thanks. I did some research and found a recent report from the International Federation of Air Traffic Controllers Associations, which estimated a shortage in Europe of 700 to 1,000 air traffic controllers. The European air market is similar in size to the U.S., and the U.S. faces a shortage today of more than 3,000 controllers and a pipeline that can't keep up with retirements. The International Federation of Air Traffic Controllers Association's report cited gaps in training, inflexible hours, and more lucrative alternative career tracks as reasons there's been difficulty luring newcomers. Apparently, some European controllers are leaving for much more lucrative jobs in the Persian Gulf, too. We don't have much visibility on the situation in Asia. And you asked about what they're doing. I know there are several air traffic service providers in Europe that are far ahead of the U.S. in terms of technology, and a point Ben made on a previous show about increasing each controller's capacity to safely handle more airplanes with better technology, and that's a real key to coming up with a solution to this this problem. Um, as well as finding ways to attract young people into this business. These are good jobs. These are kids who grow up on on video games, and there's a video game element to air traffic control. Um, I would think these jobs would be uh, very, very attractive uh, to 20-something-year-old kids uh, today. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's difficult work, and uh, and and there is tremendous pressure, and the current workforce is really unhappy. So people look at that and say, you know, I can do just fine with a tech job or a or a consulting job or or something else where uh, smart people can um, can do very well. 
or one where the consequence isn't as fatal. Yes. You mess up. Yeah. Bottom line, Eric, is that it is a problem in Europe, but not nearly to the extent it is in the U.S. But Eric, it was a great question. I think we should look around the world for best practice, including countries that do it themselves and those that outsource to private companies. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's right for the U.S., but we should learn from every way it's done and adapt the best practices here. Yep, absolutely. And Ben, Katie from Chicago, who is applying to business schools after working for several years as a tech consultant, has a question for you. Dear Ben and Scott, I love the podcast and have listened for several years. With all the issues in airline technology we've been hearing about recently, which come from age, outdated design, and policy factors, it is no secret that transformative change is needed in systems like passenger service, scheduling, and maintenance and operations. What is the role of the chief information officer or chief technology officer of a particular airline in undertaking monumental technology change for their airline and for the industry at large? Who can we travelers look to to lead the industry through technological change? Wow, Katie, this is a great question. And I hope you throw your hat in the ring to join the industry and help us with this. The reality is the CIOs or CTOs or whatever you call them have become increasingly important at every airline. It's not only what customers see in terms of the app, help when things go wrong, but it's also how the airline runs scheduling the planes, making good decisions when weather comes in, and more. Technology is the way for airlines to become more efficient and a good way for airlines to mitigate the cost of higher pilot wages. The technology group at airlines are growing in importance, not shrinking. One other thing I'll say is one way the industry has gotten people to work in this area is because they can offer remote work. Not everyone needs to be in a single office. That said, to really make change, the best IT people will be one who talk to people in the airline, talk to customers, and really know what the airline is doing every day so they can come up with technology that makes it faster and easier for all. I think that's all terrific. And Katie, I think you you already sense this. The chief information officer, chief technology officer, um, they're becoming so important that we now see some of them rising even higher in the ranks of airlines. Bob Jordan at Southwest, for example, the CEO, came up the technology side. Um, it's hugely important. I would think it would be enormously attractive to smart technology people because the problems are so challenging. They're so diverse. The passenger, as you mentioned, passenger services, scheduling, maintenance and operations. You can add pricing um, huge AI uh, opportunities in, in aviation. It would just seem to me that this would be a much more interesting uh, area to work than, say, Walmart, where you you know the the challenges are are not as as passenger facing or 
or customer facing or, or immediate um, or banking or so, or so many other areas uh, that just aren't as complicated as airlines. So when you get your MBA, I hope uh, you, you come solve airline problems. Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with much more. Have a great week, everyone, and make sure to check out the archive. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.